You're listening to Stand to Reasons hashtag STRESC podcast with Greg Kokel and Amy Hall. Amos. Yes, I am Amy Hall. You are correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got that right, Greg. Okay, um, so today I just have some miscellaneous ones. Sometimes I get random ones that don't really fit into any category. Okay. So we're going to get a bunch of these. Um, so this first one comes from Michelle. Hello, Greg and Amy. I have not been able to find any extra biblical accounts of the resurrection of multiple people described in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two, and it's not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Wouldn't this have been worthy of comment? Well, this uh, is similar to the challenge about the infants that were murdered in Bethlehem by Herod, um, and that Jesus, J- Joseph, and Mary were able to escape to Egypt and avoid that kind of threat, and. People say, where is that in other places? Well, I'll tell you where it's at. (laughs) It's in the canonical Gospels. These are historical records from that period of time. And um, there is every reason to believe, as even Bart Ehrman does, that these are on balance reliable. And uh, the reason he gives, and I have the video where he explains this to a Jesus mythicist type, Mither guy, I'm not sure the right word, but um, he, we have multiple accounts that are early, and they kind of cross-reference each other. And then we also have additional accounts, um, like Josephus, for example, that bear testimony to a lot of details that are uh, that are found in the Gospels. So we have these these different ways that historians use to determine whether a text that appears to be historical has reliable historical information, okay? But nobody expects that every single detail out of any given reference that seems plausible and believable given the record requires additional uh, substantiation from other historical records to believe, because in many things there are very singular details that are recorded that are not recorded in other things. And uh, there are reasons for this. You don't have a 24-7 news cycle. You don't have satellites. You don't have uh, embedded reporters. You don't have cameras. You don't have digital, all this other stuff that makes information from around the world virtually immediately accessible to us. You have an ancient Near Eastern world where all kinds of bizarre things happen because of the the nature of the religion of the people um, that were there, the cultures. You have a brutal Roman Empire. You got brutal Greeks before them. Um, You have, they brutalized the Jews during the intertestamental period. And what do we have a record of? I'm I'm not sure if there's the Maccabean revolt that's recorded in uh, the in books that some people think should be in the Bible, apocryphal books. They're they're historical works that uh, originated during the time between John the Baptist and Jesus. But if if those books give you solid information about the Maccabean revolt, why should it matter whether some other person doesn't give a characterization of that? That's the basic problem here. It's, It's the Bible should not be believed unless you have external historical evidence of some sort to verify it. But they don't do that with other works, okay? And the fact is, the the infants murdered in the little town of Bethlehem 
were probably 15 to 20 at the most. And so it's not the kind of massacre that would make the headlines of the ancient Near East. Okay. Now, in this case, we have something similar going on. I'm just playing out the, uh, the, um, uh, what are we looking at? Matthew 27. Matthew 27, and, 52. And that's okay. And so consequently, thank you. So consequently, um, if you have a resurrection like is described there when the temple uh, curtain is rent, Jesus dies to tell us, die, Father, into my hands, I commit my spirit. All these amazing things take place. Why would we expect anybody else in the Roman Empire to report this? I, I don't see why we would expect that. Now, in in our times, the idea that anybody comes out of the grave would make even CNN headlines, right? Uh, or at least the allegation that they did. Uh, MSNBC, they're going to report this kind of stuff. So it doesn't matter where on the political spectrum you are, this is the kind of thing that get, get reported. That is not the case there. You, you just don't have the kind of news apparatus in place, nor the interest of that stuff, um, because all kinds of crazy things happen in the ancient Near Eastern world. And, by the way, they th- those people were completely comfortable with the idea of a supernatural realm. That's why they had pantheons of other gods that were meant to explain things that happened in nature. So th- that there would be a resurrection, I mean, th- this— it, it it was not completely implausible given the worldview. Now, there were intellects, intellectuals at the time who thought that idea was silly. Okay, and we see that response to Paul on Mars Hill. Um, I think it's Acts chapter 18, where he's making his case for his own view, preaching the sermon regarding the unknown God. And then he says, God has furnished proof of this man going to be the final judge of the world by raising him from the dead. Now, they mention a resurrection there. These guys are scoffing, okay? So um, there are some that aren't going to believe that, but there's a whole bunch of people that it's, it's, not, it's not outside, it's not implausible. It's not outside of the realm of their worldview that something like that could actually take place. So there just isn't the, simply put, there just isn't the apparatus uh, or the interest in general of broadcasting this event all around. Nevertheless, we do have an historical source that describes the event, and there's no reason why we shouldn't take that seriously, especially when the worldview that is argued for or presumed in these doctor- documents is a miraculous worldview where, in fact, people do rise from the dead. Jesus did, and there will be a general resurrection in the future. And that was part of even um, Hebrew theology. Now, the Sadducees, as a a religious sect, did not believe in the resurrection. Certainly, the the Pharisees did. So, you have a a climate there, worldviews, pagan and religious, that were aware, fully aware of a supernatural world, and and fully aware, <clears throat> excuse me, of the possibility, a plausibility of resurrection at some time. So this wouldn't, this would be unusual. The graves are open and people walk around among other people, but it wouldn't be, it, it, it wouldn't be implausible to them like it is to many now. So one last thing is um, some have argued, Michael Lacona, for example, that this characterization um, that we see there in Matthew about pe- people coming out of the tombs is not meant to be taken literally. Uh, 
it's meant to be taken as a figure of sorts that is meant to communicate something else. Now, I'm not really that familiar with his argument. I just know he got in a lot of trouble for making that argument or offering that as a possibility because in ancient literature of this sort, you see things like that imported in to make a certain point, um, even though they were not historical, strictly speaking. So that's another possible way of looking at it. It's not what I embrace, but uh, I'm just saying that's a that that's that is a, a way of understanding those events that's on the table for many people. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't even think we need to go there because, well, a couple reasons. First, I don't think there's any other extra biblical account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Right. And that plays a big part in John, but nowhere else in the Bible is that. So there was, I've heard people say before that maybe John waited until everyone was dead so no one would be retaliated against. That's a possibility. Who knows why someone might leave it out and Matthew would put that in. But it happened with John and Lazarus and nobody blinks an eye. So I'm not sure why. I think think part of it could be that it sounds more incredible to us (laughs) that people would rise from the grave— when Jesus dies, then that Lazarus would be raised. But I'm not sure why that would be. I'm not sure why well, that's less with believable. Laz- and with Lazarus, you have Jesus working yet another miracle of resurrection, which he's done before, and uh, and calling him forth where there is no human command mm-hmm. or divine command from Jesus of any sort that those others would raise. It's just coincident with his death, and it's meant to make kind of a statement. Yeah, but still, like— being raised from the dead, God can raise people from the dead. Sure. Like it, it's not outside the realm of a possibility, given right. the worldview. Uh, but there are also, I think, some people have an incorrect view of how this looked. So, first of all, how many people were there? They said there were saints, and I think sometimes people think, "Oh, those are the famous people of the past." Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think when he says saints, he's probably talking about people who were followers of Jesus who had died and had not live to oh, see the resurrection. So it was probably local people that people would have known, not like famous people, and probably not many. So like you pointed out with the, the children who were killed, we're talking about a smaller population. It, it It's, you know, people who are raised. And I think it, God could have raised them so that they could see the result of what had happened. I don't know. I don't know why he did. There's no explanation. Mm-hmm. But that could have been why. And we have the example that uh, there's no extra biblical account of Lazarus. Um, but we we also know that there was a huge explosion of believers very shortly after this, and this could have contributed to sure. it. So it's not like it's outside the realm of what we see happening in the New Testament and what we see happening after Jesus' resurrection. So, I yeah, I, I don't think— um, I don't think it's that unusual. We also don't have a ton of writings from the period. (laughs) But don't we have people who recognize the miracle working? Maybe not recognize it, but they they note that he was a supposed miracle worker. There's a section in the Talmud that describes Jesus executed because he was a sorcerer. Mm -hmm. Now, that seems to suggest that he worked miracles. As a sorcerer, that's the way they interpreted mm-hmm. it. But the fact is that he did something supernatural. So that's an intimation, or I should say it's a corroboration of the bi- biblical accounts that give detail about mm-hmm. that. 
Okay, thank you for that, Michelle. Let's go on to a, a question from Summer Jasmine. Do you think the mechanics for the creation of a rainbow did not naturally exist before God put it in the sky for Noah? Well, I I, uh, I never thought of that. Um, I, I get, my impulse would be to think that it did. Uh, let me back up and try to give a parallel. When when Moses parts the Red Sea, God responds by using what the east wind or something like that, a natural feature to accomplish the parting. Okay, now it could, but the wind existed before that, but it was used now for a very particular purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't have the text in front of me from Genesis where it says God put the bow in the air, you know, and this will be a sign to you. But I don't know why there's no reason that it couldn't have happened before and is now being used as a providential sign, a promise for the future. Um, Circumcision was a sign that identified Jewish people, but circumcision was done by Egyptians before that. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I don't. That's exactly I, the note I have here. Really, circumcision. Yeah. It it it's God choosing things to be a sign of something else doesn't mean He just created it at that moment. Right. Like you said with circumcision, there's another example where Aaron's rod buds to show that he's the one who's in charge, and then God says, "Keep that as a sign." You know, He didn't just create it for that. It he has them keep it so they can look to it, and when they see it, they'll think of that. Right. Um, so here's what it says in Genesis 9. This is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the right. earth. So it sounds to me— and it says, it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And he goes on. But the idea is, he's, he, I think you could easily read that as I, I already set this in there, but now when I see it, I will remember this covenant. Right. And it's just something that will come up all the time, that God will constantly be reminded but I don't think it's necessary to say that there was no rainbow at all before Right. That. That's not in, in the text at yeah. all. It's just the significance of the bow that he placed there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, here's a question from Matt. Hey, Greg and Amy, why do you think that Jesus told the restored demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 to go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, but commanded the deaf and mute man he healed in Mark chapter 7 not to tell anyone about the healing? Um. I don't know specifically why it's, um, and again, going through the circumstances there, it may be uh, more evident. There were times when Jesus had so many crowds following him that he had to retire to some remote place to get a breath uh, of fresh air, so to speak, or to pray or to be with his disciples. Um, for Towards the end of his work, he, he actually went to Caesarea Philippi, which is on the north uh, would be the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's a Gentile region. It's just to get away from the crowds and do some things that needed to be done. And I think part of the concern is, is Jesus did not want the crowds to follow him for the wrong we- reason. And uh, if you look in John chapter 6, you have the Bread of Life discourse. So Jesus gave four major discourses, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and the second was the Bread of Life discourse, the last two of the 
Olivet Discourse, last week of his life, and then, of course, the Upper Room Discourse, which one quarter, at least, of the Gospel of John is devoted to, John 13 through 17. Um, but uh, what what Jesus was uh, um, concerned about, and certainly you see this played out in the Bread of Life Discourse, he had just fed the 5,000. Now people were coming they 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 wanted to see more miracles and in fact they wanted a free lunch and Jesus was chastising them for that and that's why he says don't seek for the bread that perishes but seek for the bread that gives eternal life i am the bread of life and he gives the bread of life he that portion of the bread of life discourse okay so i think there were times when he said don't tell anybody because he already had his hands full and he wasn't doing this as an attesting miracle so much as a response to deep human need. You need this, I'm going to give it to you, but don't cause any trouble. Don't tell a bunch of people, because then a whole bunch of people are going to come to him for a physical healing, and he's not—he's being used as a means to an end. He is not the end itself in their mind. This was the problem with the Bread of Life discourse. I'm the real bread. Don't, don't yearn for the bread that perishes. Yearn for the bread that if you eat it, you will have eternal life, and you will be raised up again in the last day. Now, in the case of the one that he said, go and tell, uh, I, I'd have to look more closely at that that context. At one point, he told them to go show yourself to the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, in order to, as a testimony against them regarding Jesus. So there you see he's trying to accomplish a different end. Mm-hmm. I would say that the the rationale is probably embedded in the context there, and I just gave a couple of possibilities. And I'm going to read one of those in a okay. second. Uh, I, I think with the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, that was in an area where Jesus wasn't going. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was on the east yeah. side of the uh, of the uh, Sea of Galilee and uh, Gentile area, of course. There were lots right. of pigs there that ran into the water, not Jews, right? So that's he was going point. back to the— and, since they weren't going to be there, it was important for him to proclaim it there. Yeah. But so why wouldn't Jesus want people to spread it around in the place where he already was? I, can't, I think this gives a clue. This is in Mark chapter 1, and you already referenced this one. But uh, so he he heals someone of leprosy, and it, it, here's start, starting in verse 42. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And that's what you were mm-hmm. saying. His goal was to say something to the priests. But then here's what it says after that. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. Mm-hmm. And they were coming to him from everywhere. There you go. So there, there's a reason he... He wanted to be able to enter the cities and see people, but what happened was this guy who probably thought he was doing Jesus a favor. <laughs> I mean, what a lesson that is for us yeah. when we think we know better than Jesus. And we're like, <laughs> but Jesus, this is—I know you said not to do this, but honestly, this is the better thing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Even in this case, Amazing. proclaiming Jesus was actually turned out to harm his—that's right. <laughs> what Amazing. he was trying to do. So there's a warning for all of you. But I, yeah, I think that's what's going on. I think he. He just didn't want the crowds for whatever reason. Anything else to add before no, I close I, this down? I, I think it was a good observation <laughs> about the Mark passage and the the gathering demoniacs um, because you're right. They had they had no one. They were outside of his circle, so mm-hmm. to speak. 
And uh, this was the man culturally near another another um, Gentile that needed to go to the Gentiles and proclaim what God had done. And for all we know, it was Gentiles who heard from that man who came towards the end of the Gospels where the Gentiles come and then Jesus says, okay, now it's time. The Gentiles want to see me. Now it's time for me to die. Remember that? Right. All right. Well, thank you, Michelle and Summer Jasmine and Matt. We really appreciate hearing from you. Send us your question on Twitter with the hashtag STRask or through our website at str.org. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Thanks for listening.